What is the future of mobility? Owning a car in the classic sense will go down. Yes, we have maybe more less cars for better use. So if McKenzie consults for me, can my information end up aiding one of my competitors? And, uh, no, it's not a problem because we have extremely strict rules to avoid these this situation. Well, what do you predict the changes to how day-to-day -day business operates at the moment after COVID? A particular in operation, operations was driven by cost optimization, getting cost out. Now it's about how do I get my how do I get parts and stuff to get my products out to not risk the top line. Welcome. My name is Daniel Drulay and I'm the president of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society. The Global Young Entrepreneur Society is an international organization that supports exceptional young people in achieving entrepreneurial growth. Co-hosting this event with me is Lewis Swire. Lewis is a co-founder of GS and is the editor-in-chief of the Curious Times. Joining us is Andreas Bjorn, a partner of McKenzie & Company in Cologne. With a focus on the automotive industry, he leads McKenzie's activities in digital manufacturing globally. We are very pleased to welcome Andreas Bjorn. Thank you for inviting me. You focus on the automotive industry. So what is the future of mobility? Well, I believe, first of all, that cars will lose their um, value as a status symbol. I think when I was young, you know, driving a good car with uh, certain brands was a status symbol that was important. I see that is coming down significantly with the next generation growing up. We can see it also within McKinsey with viewer people, you know, getting a company car deal every year. I think when I joined, it was like in, an, in the German office, it was like 90%. I think it's now has gone down to 50% or even less, where people are taking, you know, as mobility solution, different different uh, solutions like for example uh, uh, kind of uh, you know mobility we call it mobility vouchers for for the uh, for railways or mobility vouchers for car sharing so that's becoming more and more something so therefore i believe that owning a car in the classic sense will go down i believe that the with autonomous driving becoming more and more a real, you know, thing that that we will see, I think we will see a better utilization of vehicles. So the OEE, if that tells you anything, will go up. And so we have maybe more less cars for better use, you know, because they are used the whole day. They pick up maybe more than one person. So we will see this. This is one big area, and I believe connectivity will significantly increase within autos uh, as uh, which was not such a big topic in the past but we now see particularly uh, it's also driven in, in the chinese market connectivity of cars super important over the air updates these are the things that the classic auto industry has a little bit neglected in the past decades so that has become changing um and then of course when you look into the um the engines, the the ICE is likely not to survive the next 20 years. Or maybe in a niche, but not broad. If, if you were working with a brand that heavily relies on its reputation as a status symbol, like let's just say Land Rover or Range Rover or even like Ferrari, let's say, how, how would you help them 
retain their profit margins and, and stay as a status symbol for as long as possible. So obviously that's how they make most of their money. I think what we are trying to help clients who are building on that brand base to help translate this into the new digital world. So um, working working on the exact question, what differentiates your vehicle in this market against a Tesla or, or other cars? And, uh, and, and trying to find that brand value, but the brand value is, is changing. Yeah? So maybe your brand stands then in the future for something different than what it stands for today. Yeah? So, um, you know, the, I don't want to give any concrete examples here, but you, you typically have a certain connotation with the brand. Uh, maybe it's, a, oh, this is a high quality brand, which looks like Danish furniture or which has the quality of Danish or Scandinavian furniture and the style of, a, of the living room of the Swedish house. And then you can, if that's your style, you can translate this also into the new world. And I think that's what we're, what we're trying, trying to do. What do you think are the most influential economic trends happening today? I think it depends a little bit on the, let's say, time horizon that we're looking at. The short, on the short axis, it's still COVID. COVID has several let's say, sub-implications which drive decisions and which drive, so to say, the, the pulse of business leaders around the globe. Uh, so number one is supply shortages. You know, with the uh, COVID crisis or the COVID pandemic, you, can, you basically can see that we are in a logistical mega crisis, which starts with simple things like that containers, for example, are not available around the globe that, that they were used to. You, know, you need a container to ship, obviously, something from Los Angeles to Hamburg, right? If you don't have a container, you can't ship, even if you have produced a product. So that's a very big one. Then supply shortages. You might have heard about the, uh, the chip crisis, that we have a globally uh, significant chip shortage at the moment, which has also some roots in the pandemic, yeah, because people have made bets on, uh, okay, how much do I think I will need? And, Obviously, suppliers have adapted their capacities. Then with these supply shortages, you might learn know this from school, what happens if some, a good is short and everyone knows it's short, then prices increase. So we have significant price increases, particularly in the logistical chains, but also for energy, uh, which then drives cost up and is an immediate pressure on businesses at the moment. Then... Um, the third, the third kind of biggest thing that's happening from COVID is um, you might, uh, you, we are all now sitting in a video conference. And why can we sit in a video conference now? It's only because of COVID people had to work from home, which has boosted, significantly boosted technology for video conferencing systems, which is now changing the full, the, the logic how we do businesses in, let's say, more the white, in the white color areas you know, in administrative work. So. Most people are working from at home and have got used to it. And uh, the technology is now there to participate in a VC. I tell you, before COVID, we would have done this call here via call, via telephone conference, most likely. And now we have we use like uh, like it was nothing a Zoom conference, and we could choose between four other products yeah, if we wanted to. Uh, so the question will be, how is that going to change? Is that going to change back? I don't believe so. I think a lot of this will will stay. And um, that will then drive, uh, will have a lot of influence on, on businesses. Yeah. So maybe I'm now 
currently sitting here in Frankfurt. Maybe only 50% of the space is only needed going forward. I don't know, or 20%, or maybe we reduce by 20%. So it could have it could have significant influence. For example, the real estate market and how companies work. Then um, I said, so this is more short axis. Then you have some more long-term things. I think the, the biggest long-term driver that companies are currently thinking about is sustainability. And then of course, with the climate change becoming much more evident year by year, the pressure is already there. And companies are fortunately much faster than most of our governments. So while government policy is from my view, globally lagging, companies know if they don't change, they will lose their, their right to exist. Maybe not now, but in 10 years. So if you, for example, take a steel producer, he knows, the steel producer knows, probably in 10 to 15 years, I will need to have carbon-free steel, carbon emission-free steel production. So what do you do? Do you wait until in 15 years, this maybe is at some point in time, you know, baked into, into policies, you know, into, or do you do something about it now? And most companies decide to do something about it now. Yeah, be faster and really think about it and invest into it. I find this, by the way, very encouraging. Also, uh, you know, I tend to get frustrated from how fast climate change control is moving on in the kind of public space and public media. And when I then look in the private sector, many companies or all companies I know are taking care of this. Then the, the last thing I would like to speak about is um, kind of more social aspect. So uh, uh, several drivers here. So um, you know that um, the question of equality and um, having, for example, a 50% share of women in leading positions, that's something that's at least here in, in the European world where I'm uh, most of my times working in a very big thing. Yeah, so really trying to find capable women, trying to find uh, also spaces where you where where also women can can really progress and make a career is a big topic. Um, this connects also with uh, with some other social things on this on the supply chain side, where I don't know if you've heard about. You need to take care also of the suppliers you have and the suppliers of the suppliers and make sure that, for example, the work ethics and standards are lifted through the supply chain. I don't know if that's a very European thing only or it stands across the globe. But at least here in Europe, this is also a very big deal. So you cannot say, hey, I just bought this and put your hands off, which I also believe is a, yeah, it's a, it's a more long-term driver, of course. And then a very long-term driver, which most companies intellectually understand but don't do anything about it, is the question of how the capabilities of your workforce have to change over time, increased digitization, analytics, and, and a changing work environment. It's something that's probably maybe coming in five to 10 years, but uh, it's not something you can feel. You can't feel the pressure right now. And that's why companies currently don't really act upon it. Andreas, you joined McKinsey in 2009. What were the top business lessons you have learned over your time at McKinsey? The, the biggest lesson learned is that it's, it's all about leadership. You can have the best idea. You can have the best kind of personal talent and capabilities. But if there's no leader, or if you're not yourself a super strong leader, then you will not make it. Because you can never, also as an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, you will always have a team. And the question is, how do you lead the team? And it's about getting really the juice in a positive sense out of the team. And then there's one other thing I learned, which is more fun fact. 
nothing what I learned in business administration in a German university was useful in any way. Oh, really? You think? So if, if you had had the chance, would you have uh, not gone to university? No, I would. I would. I, would, I don't want to say that. No, no, absolutely. I would go because I believe for me, it's not so much about the, uh, the content in itself. It's more about it's brain training. Yeah? It's a stretch for your brain. You, you learn how to memorize things and you learn ways of working. But like in the core essence, what do you really need from this for later? It's not much. But uh, uh, still, I would always still go back and still do it again. Yeah. What is digital manufacturing and what are its benefits for startups? You have four pillars. You have pillar number one is connectivity. You, you connect with your machines and you connect maybe with adjacent processes in R&D and procurement. So establishing connectivity. Second element is with that connectivity, gather data. And with that data, that's the third pillar, do something. So display it somewhere, use it for management purposes, use it for optimization, do advanced analytics with it, use modern statistical methods, use it for artificial intelligence and so forth. And the fourth pillar is the advanced automation piece, AGVs in plants, uh, self-driving trucks, um, robots that are working hand in hand. That's, but that's for me all the more narrow view of it. Yeah? And that's for me digital. And of course, also digitized processes. So no scanners anymore, no one typing in manually anything anymore. No auto processing with manual work and pieces of paper, just all digitized. Startup is not an incumbent player with a large supply chain and, and mass production. Yeah, it's more, it starts small. Yes, startup starts small. So, and I believe that digital manufacturing offers a lot of opportunities here for startups. Because when you think of, let's say, that the trends are going much more towards customized products and e commerce and direct to customer interaction then digital manufacturing in the broader sense gives a big opportunity because you can think of, you customize your product, I don't know, in a configurator in the internet, and then it makes this, this, this kind of order and configuration makes this whole way through the kind of order intake systems to the procurement processes, to the final supply chain and manufacturing processes, which are maybe not internal, but maybe our third party contract manufacturer who does it for you, and then you have the logistics company shipping it. If you look at this as an integrated product, you know, you, as a so as a startup, you can kind of create with digital manufacturing something that produces something without having to invest into plants and trucks and physical investment. So in this sense, I believe digital manufacturing is a fantastic opportunity for, for startup companies to avoid large capex, to make use of highly specialized supply chain supply chain companies, so manufacturers, logistics companies, et cetera, and bring something kind of a product, even physical products out on the market uh, in a reasonable amount of time, with high customization, and maybe with, 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 uh, yeah, with a just a much easier market entry than if you were to compete with someone who really physically puts stuff together. Well, you, you sort of actually like tapped into this a little bit in your first bit of the answer there, but, um. What, what do you predict the changes to how day-to-day -day business operates um, on corporations at the moment after COVID? We will have definitely a, a, a diff some of the home office and stuff will stay. And so I don't believe that we will go back to a complete normal. Also, I believe 
the way how business meetings are going to be held will change. Yeah? So not everyone will fly for a day around the globe to have a one a half hour meeting and then fly back home. I think these things will, will I guess, will change because people have found out, hey, instead of sitting in an aircraft flying 10 hours from A to B, I can also be at home and maybe take care of my kids and my family and then do a one hour steering committee where otherwise I would have flown over. So I think these is more on the surface. There are more general business conduct. Right? I think these things will for sure change. I also believe that companies will think more about how can you make your supply chains resilient? Uh, meaning if such large disruptions come, what, how, how do you make sure that the supply chain still works? And uh, you could say, well, maybe this is a one-timer and it takes another hundred years until the next one-timer like this comes. But with the, um, what I've seen a lot, you know, there was a lot of floodings in Germany in the past year where I know I've seen some companies who have lost suppliers who had maybe one plant, which was then flooded. And if your supplier's plant gets flooded, what do you do? You can't sell because you might need that product. So the, 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 to, to have a much you know, more serious look at risks, what could happen that could impact me on my supply chain is something that I think companies will do more. Yeah, you cannot, I think that the system was driven to, uh, to the edge uh, in the way that the supply chains are globally split. We have an enormous amount of how, how work is split between different countries. Yeah, we are shipping parts across the globe from A to B, from B to C, et cetera which also makes it a very a system which is sensitive to disruptions. Yeah, if, if one sort of say coin, or if, how do you say this? If one uh, brick flips, you know what I mean? Then the whole like domino bricks, then the whole chain collapses. And that is, I think a little bit what we are seeing. The dependencies are just too big. And um, that might, this, I think it's not like this right now, but I think it might also lead to the point that companies rethink the supply chain setup. Maybe going to best cost countries is not the best choice anymore. Maybe best cost means closer, maybe means less risks on taxes and duties, political risks, et cetera. Maybe less risks are in, in yeah, less risk in, in, in losing supply. You cannot sell a product if you don't have the ingredients. It's that simple. A particular in operation, operations was driven by cost optimization, getting cost out. And now we are in a different in a different world now it's about how do i get my how do i get parts and stuff to get my products out to not risk the top line now no if you have no top line you cannot save costs right how will artificial intelligence transform the way businesses solve the problems they face we will see it in predicting sales to predicting what daniel would like to buy next on amazon to how we steer a manufacturing process um, I think the, the the how is a good question. So how will it change? I think the how is in the past you could you could more or less understand every decision and every proposal because it came from the pattern recognition typically of a human being, or maybe it was a very simple analysis with with some correlation analysis at best. I think in, in artificial intelligence, the pattern recognition is we give this in the hands of a machine which creates more insights, insights into, into basically how things are connected with each other to drive decisions, which we as human beings normally couldn't do. 
So the how now, what, what changes now? I think what changes is that the we lose, and I don't mean this negative in, in any way, right? But we lose a little bit of the personal control of what's happening. Yeah, let's take a machine. The machine, you, you maybe you look, oh, a parameter XYZ is red. Then you go to the machine and you do something so that the parameter red is going to green. Now you have an artificial intelligence system who's connecting 500 parameters to say, okay, what to do now to get from red to green. So we give control out of our hands. So that is the how. And so it will take control away, but also of course boost maybe efficiency, boost effectivity, and at the end of the day lead to more value. In, in the coming years, what industries do you think will see the most growth? I think e-commerce is really going, is really accelerating and maybe also driven by Corona, which has an enormous, you know, input or in, in input or an enormous effect on logistics companies. You know, you see the growth rate of like small logistics neighborhood type of services is exploding. Yeah. So... Um, of course, you have all the supply industries for electrification of vehicles. I mean, we need to find all the ingredients for batteries and electromotors somewhere in the world. Somewhere to dig them out of the ground <laughs> to find them. We have, uh, I guess, also driven by, when you look at uh, the technology boost from Corona, I think in the pharma space, there's quite some interesting traction now with the mRNA vaccines which might drive an enormous growth in for other vaccines, for cancer or um, something like this. And so I think that's, there we have a very strong potential growth. Um, will car sales grow like crazy? I don't think so. Yeah, so we are already at a super high level. It's not a super big growth platform, but the transition in this industry, of course, leads to growth in certain fields. When you look, for example, at the moment and how many battery factories are being built across the globe, it's, uh, yet large growth for machinery companies who are doing equipment for battery factories. So there's an enormous growth in these areas. Do you think that manufacturing will be taken out of emerging countries? Yeah, the, I think we will not take out real production from emerging countries. I think the emerging, it, it's a slow process, right? It takes years. Uh, it takes decades to move somewhere and to, or to move back. I think these um, in these emerging countries, what will happen is they will work even harder to um, to stay competitive or keep a competitive edge and yeah, to overcome the, the potential disadvantage of being too broad or too far away, which will then again boost productivity and value creation in those countries. So I, don't, I think it's a slow process, which um, at the end of the day will not in this sense kill jobs somewhere else, but will just you know lead to structural changes. Yeah. These guys will then do other stuff, find stuff for themselves. Do you think that in this digital world, more and more services will be done from emerging countries, taking advantage of lower living costs? Social services. I mean, we had the concept of offshore and shared services exist since decades, right? So I would not say that this now enables further push into this direction. Because you can do any kind of kind of service you can theoretically do sitting in an office anywhere in the world, so to say. If you have now a Zoom or not, I think it's not the question. Like for the classic business services, let's say accounting services, computer services, IT services, 
you can do also without Zoom. But what I believe is that we might see more services that are that you could do, yeah, where you're overcoming logistical distances much easier. So maybe you know someone who's doing, let's say, a psychologist can maybe do much more remote work and maybe increase the throughput of patients. I'm not saying very <laughs> operations type of you, but you know what I mean. Yeah? Or increase it to other com countries and or overcome time zones, etc. I think there we have a lot of services where I could believe with the video conferencing systems that we have now and the we are getting closer. Yeah, we are in a, to a certain degree we are getting more distant when you look at your everyday job where you were normally used to go to an office, but it also brings you closer. Like we three would not be we are feeling much closer in this interview because of the technology. Yeah, so I can now provide you a better service than if we had a phone call I would just write some write an email. And I think you can think this through more services and also probably higher profile uh, services, profile job type of services. There's a lot of talk about industry 4.0. What is the fourth industrial revolution? And what is McKinsey and the World Economic Forum doing to address it? Digital manufacturing, I gave you the explanation of what it is. So the fourth industrial revolution is exactly that you, the four things that I explained. Yeah? So it's connectivity, it's data, data analytics and the next wave of automation yeah which will boost um you know new business models but also just improve internal processes significantly in their efficiency and, and quality output and uh, i think um what what we're doing together with the world economic forum is that we try to find lighthouses and connect and build communities and connect people and so um you know you might have seen the lighthouses or seen at least a list of it. You see it spans across the globe, it spans across industries. And uh, this has, you know, led to a very deep relationship between these uh, lighthouse company responsibles ex exchanging experiences and best practices and being also the North Star for many other companies who are looking at this and saying, hey, I also would like to have that such a lighthouse. Yeah, Not for the sake of the lighthouse, but, you know, as a symbol for basically moving moving ahead in, to the net to the fourth industrial revolution which is around the fourth thing um we as mckinsey are of course we are working with many companies across the globe to make them digital or to bring the fourth industrial revolution to them and help them go this this journey from you know uh, old non-digital company to an agile efficient highly efficient fully digitized company so um, that's that's our role, and we are, our role is typically to you know help companies do the real transformation, uh, which is much more than technology. It's also about changing processes, behaviors, capabilities, and uh, yeah, we we accompany companies on this journey. So you mentioned that you accompany um, corporations on their journey. How, how do you achieve this as McKinsey? So what do you actually do? Are you are you consulting? And if if so, how does that actually uh impact these businesses and how do you how do you improve them and bring them forward into this so it typically starts with a question of okay what what are the things that i should do that what i should digitize what are the things i should analyze what are the um the processes i should improve and we typically do this in a value back approach so we go there and together with the client we identify what should change then the second the second point is that we try to find um the right Eco uh, ecosystem of, of 
technology vendors yeah, who then set up the IoT infrastructure, who create the connectivity, who might provide um, you know, help for programming of applications. Uh, so that's also a large task. And then the most important task, this was all very techy. The next task is, let's say you have a, a company with only, let's say only 150 people. So how would you make these people now adopt the new technologies? How do you make someone be able not to only adopt and use it, but also to maybe move it forward yeah, and, and invest further into new ideas. And so at the end of the day, you want to have a self-learning organization, which is enabled to do the stuff themselves. Where also someone who has maybe, he's maybe, you know, 30 years in the company, now learns how to program Python, yeah, or learns how to program a simple app. Yeah? And, and, and if he has an app, showing him how to use it in everyday life so that something comes out. So that's where, where that's our role. I would see it much more in the second half and really the adoption, adaptation and learning and further capability building. So for example, we install in companies, installed so-called digital academies where you have digital cookbooks and digital training sessions from software to CEO level and really, you know, having the right amount of training for each role yeah, so that afterwards people can really use it. And it's adult learning only. It has nothing to do with university type of uh, presentation of content. What are McKenzie's CEO perspectives and how do you write them? I believe you write them for the operations practice. Yes, and we are currently in a journey of writing a view of those. So what is it? So what we are trying to do is we, we try to put ourselves into the role of a CEO and ask ourselves, if I were the CEO, what, what are the big topics I need to have on the radar screen? And how do we find these topics is now the question. So for example, I, when I did this just recently, I interview with many senior advisors that McKinsey is, is using. Yeah? So people who are actually still, you know, in, 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 at our clients and we ask them, okay, what, what do you think is, is most pressing or is pressing in two years, three years, 10 years? And I speak across industries. I speak with experts from, from our firm who are, who are always having their ear on the pulse and the heart of the particular industries. Uh, and since McKinsey speaks more or less every day with hundreds of CEOs globally, we are in a kind of constant screening of the top pressing topics because people reflect with us as a consultant people come to you to reflect on their most pressing issues, asking for reflection and potentially also help. And with that, you, are always, you always know what is the latest and greatest stuff that people have in mind. And this is how it comes to a CEO perspective on a certain topic. So if McKenzie consults for me, can my information end up aiding one of my competitors? And, uh, no, it's not a problem because we have extremely strict rules to avoid these, this situation. And so um, when you are serving a certain client in a certain industry, you cannot serve in the same industry a direct competitor of that client. That's impossible. And we have very, very strict Chinese walls within our firm. However, what we, of course, exchange are, um, let's say, improvements on practice. Now, for example, give you one example. Um, if you want to improve the purchasing price of something that you buy, what you typically try to do is you try to understand what the cost of this product are, of this component. So we have large databases and models to calculate costs of maybe this bottle of Coca-Cola. 
uh, and I exactly know what it should cost. This is a general practice that anyone could bring to any client. Uh, so it's not, it's agnostic to a certain industry. So of course, we're trying to develop every day these kind of innovative topics and trying to push it with our clients to help them, uh, you know, create more value. But there's very strict rules on who can serve who. What, what would you recommend young entrepreneurs to focus on at the beginning of their careers? I would always say, first of all, follow your passion. And don't ask what other people think you should do and don't ask what some outside circumstances recommend you do. But always follow your passion. That's my first very big recommendation. Then um, I think um, overall it depends a little bit on what do you want to do? This is also what I tell the uh, um, people who um, you know, interviewed McKinley to join us. So for example, if your passion is to develop technical products, yeah, technical stuff, for example, the next generation super high voltage, high premium battery pack, then I would say if that's your passion, maybe then you should go first in the first time maybe to a battery company and learn, you know, get your hands dirty as a R&D guy to know, get to know the fundamentals. Yeah, if you, and you could then use this later on to maybe do your own business, but you need to learn something, of course, yeah, in that sense. Um, if that's it, not so much the super hardcore technical side, it's, it's what your passion is. I believe that McKinley is always a super good choice. Yeah, to probably has the steepest learning curve you can ever imagine, seeing enormous amount of industries and functions, understanding how life works and how companies work. Of course, with a fantastic set of colleagues and uh, high-paced entrepreneurial people. Yeah, and McKinsey in itself is a very entrepreneurial place, but which you might not think. But McKinsey, we have one saying which says, um, build your own McKinsey. And it basically stands for, um, you can, with an entrepreneurial mindset, create your own world and value proposition and your own product. Now, of course, it's consulting products. It's maybe not physical, but you can you know, live your life as an entrepreneur within McKinsey. Um, it's not a startup, of course, but we have small elements of startup, like startup companies, uh, where when you build your own innovative topic that you can bring to clients, which is like building a small company. Yeah? But um, I know where you're coming from, yeah? from like a classic startup background. We have many, many um, colleagues who stay with us for a few years and then go to startup companies, build startup companies. I think we see everything. Um, whereas the classic trend to go to a big corporate, I have the impression is going a little bit down. Why do you think so? The, the young generation, like you guys have understood that if you want to be creative and we do something, in a startup place is maybe a good place to be at. And my parents maybe were, when I look at my parents, they probably were more in the mood, I need to get find a job, need to find a safe job, safety, security, where the values, and I have the impression that, but you can tell me, yeah, in your generation, it's more, these values are getting a little bit more in the background. You guys taking more risk. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's fantastic because it moves things forward. Everyone is now focused on the climate issue and reducing the carbon footprint. But how do you reduce carbon footprint? You reduce consumption. So how do businesses retain their profits while consumption is being reduced? That's one of the most fundamental questions. I think the 
fundamental issue that we have, and now it's getting a little bit philosophical, it's the question, what is the value of goods? And when you give a, a T-bone steak a value, then today you may buy in Germany and it, you might pay 30 euros for it in a restaurant, 30. The problem is not the steak, the problem is what you needed to put into the steak. And every ingredient was priced in the wrong way. If we price it in the right way and we had all technologies in place to create it in a sustainable way, there would be an enormous amount of additional value add in the creation of that one T-bone steak, which in itself creates a multiplier effect in growth and additional services, additional technologies that we don't just don't see or know at the moment. Right? If you would produce energy only with renewable energies, imagine what this would mean for um, water uh, um, plants, for uh, solar energy, windmills, you know, I believe it's the prices which are wrong, which lead then to a too high utilization of resources, which we could kind of replace with more sustainable way of, of using resources. And of course, I don't know what the macroeconomic model behind this, but I believe if you would really solve all of this, the value creation on this on getting it sustainable is so high that it will most likely overcompensate what you might lose now in excess consumption. At the end, it's excess consumption. And the second element is, what about services? We can spend all our money in services, in digital services, and create value there. So and you do, it doesn't always need to be physical. Look at Netflix. It's a service that didn't exist a few years ago. Now it's a large company, creates value. And there's tons of these examples. And uh, so I believe it's not necessarily required to translate everything in physical consumption or consumption of physical goods. We have come to the end of today's discussion, which I found very useful and highly insightful. On behalf of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, Andreas Bierent, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Danny Lewis, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to give you some of my old insights.